Bible this morning, please turn to the 14th chapter of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 14. Mark seems to present the events of the Passion Week of Jesus in these groups to highlight the points he wants to make or the things uh, on which he wants us to focus in this story. And so as we continue through chapter 14 this morning, we'll see put together very deliberately here um, the failure and unfaithfulness of the disciples that is set in direct contrast to the faithfulness and obedience of Jesus. And we will realize the fact that God is sovereign over sin and evil to the point that He uses and even ordains them to accomplish His purpose and remains righteous and just and holy. Nowhere, nowhere is this more clear that God is like this, nor is anywhere is it more pronounced than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The greatest sin ever committed by humankind, ever, was the murder of Jesus. And God ordained it, He designed it to glorify His name and to save His people from their sins. If we listen to the language of the Bible, we hear this. The prophet Isaiah wrote of God's suffering servant, who we know is Jesus in Isaiah 53, that He was smitten by God and afflicted. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. It wasn't just... God's will that Jesus would be our substitute, standing in our place as a righteous offering to forgive our sins by His blood. God ordained for Jesus to do it precisely because no one else could do it. So that's also going to be highlighted in the murder of Jesus in the story of this week. Not just His faithfulness, but also our unfaithfulness, our inability, our unwillingness Beloved, if God isn't this sovereign, if Jesus isn't willing to come and live and die and rise again for us, there is no salvation. It will not happen. We were not, are not, and never will be up to the task of saving us like Jesus was. We all need Him so much, more than any of us could possibly fathom this morning. So who Jesus is, remember, Jesus is for us. The sovereignty of God and the sinfulness of people required the sending of God's only begotten Son, the only one who could accomplish His saving purpose, to become the sacrifice for their sin. Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You for the Word You inspired and written through the hands of people, of men, to proclaim Him to us. We thank You, Father, for this text this morning as we enter now uh, the final week of Jesus before His death. And so, Lord, now turn our hearts to You based on this text, based on what You've breathed into it that we might get out of it. Father, please help me preach clearly. Help me preach the truth. Let me not be uh, deceived by my flesh or overcome by my flesh, but let me be filled with Your Spirit led by Your Spirit to speak the truth of Your Word. I ask, Father, that by the power of Your Spirit You would penetrate our hearts, that we might hear precisely what we need to. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me begin at verse 12 here in chapter 14. And on the first day of unleavened bread, 
when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my, with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping his bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If you remember from last week at all, the two festivals of Passover and unleavened bread were often identified in Jewish culture together as the Passover. Passover was celebrated in the Jewish month of Nisan on the 15th, which actually began as we know it at dusk on the evening of Nisan. The 14th, this comes from Leviticus 23, 5 and 6, Numbers 28, 16 and 17. My conviction is that here, the Last Supper that's being instituted here is, is not simply the actual Jewish Passover. This is a new Passover inaugurated by Jesus that he's celebrating early technically with his disciples since he knew he'd be arrested before uh, he could celebrate the Passover at the normal or traditional time. Mark refers to the first day of the festival of, of unleavened bread as the day when they sacrificed the Passover lamb in verse 12. This is preparation day, which was Nisan the 14th as the Passover itself began that evening, which was the 15th by their reckoning. So if we take the order of Jewish events from the Gospel of John for the Jewish Passover and the lambs were not sacrificed until Friday afternoon of that week, which, by the way, is at the precise time of the crucifixion, Mark may be telling us that the supper described here happened just after sundown on Thursday evening. I know there are other ways to view this timeline that uh, and this meal that also have support from Scripture, so I'm not saying that dogmatically. I'm simply just trying to help us get our bearings as I understand it. Uh, we can assume Jesus is still in Bethany uh, as this section opens, and Passover had to be celebrated in the city of Jerusalem proper. So the disciples ask him, where do you want us to eat the meal? We know from Luke 22, verse 8, that the two disciples Jesus sent were Peter and John. His knowledge here of the events is one of two things. Either Jesus is telling this as the result of divine insight, or I think more likely here, he had already made an arrangement with someone. That's why the wording is what it is. Uh, the man will meet you. So that's been arranged. The guest room had already been prepared. Either way, the point is Jesus is the one orchestrating the events that lead up to his crucifixion. A man carrying a water jar would stand out. Normally that was something that women did in this culture. And the room will already be furnished and ready. It'll be equipped with those low tables about 12 inches or so off the ground. There'll be couches for dining. The disciples do what he said and find things exactly as he told them they would be in verse 16. Normal preparations for the Passover would have meant acquiring the lamb, having it sacrificed at the temple, getting the rest of the food, which would be the unleavened bread, wine, bitter herbs, this fruit sauce for dipping called haroseth. Whether or not they actually got the lamb and roasted it depends again on, you don't see it mentioned, it would depend again on whether or not this, lamb, this was the normal Passover meal 
or Jesus is instituting his new Passover a day early, which is what I personally think is happening. But then in verses 17 and 18, the text begins to turn. Jesus predicts his betrayal by one of his very own disciples. The reader, you and I, we know who it is. Verses 10 and 11 told us who it is. Mark 3.19 told us who it is. History knows who it is. You'd be hard-pressed to find a person that doesn't at least know the name of Judas Iscariot. The disciples, however, at this time did not know who it is. They had no clue. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus had often warned his disciples that he was going to be delivered into the hands of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Delivered into the hands somebody was going to give him to them. But they found out here, the betrayer that arranges this will be one of their own number. As John reminds us, Jesus' words here fulfills Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. It was a matter of social status in Mediterranean culture to share a meal with somebody. It indicated trust. It indicated friendship. You didn't eat with people that you didn't have that with. Jesus is revealing that this is the worst kind of betrayal. It's coming from a close friend, a trusted one, a partner. Obviously, in verses 19 and 20, the disciples were sorrowful about this, but they want to know who it is. Surely it can't be one of them. Surely Jesus doesn't mean that, but he clarifies that it is one of the twelve. One who at that moment is pretending to be his close friend, pretending to be one of his own. Look in verse 21 again. For the Son of Man goes as it has written of him. The four there telling us that it was written of the Son of Man that he was going to be betrayed by a close friend. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So when you read that, you have to stop and say, wait, what, what Jesus is about to go through was prophesied of him? He knew the whole time all of this was going to happen, even when he selected his disciples? He knew all of his life that this was coming? Who decided this was necessary? Who wrote this? If something is written, whose plan is being worked out here? Jesus spoke about the necessity of his suffering as the Son of Man all throughout the book of Mark. It's one of the key themes in it, 831, 931. 10.33 and 34, 10.45, it's all through the gospel. Back in 9.12, he said that his suffering at their hands was the very fulfillment of Scripture. Part of that fulfillment is his betrayal at the hands of a friend. We'll find later, God willing, next week in verse 49 in the Garden of Gethsemane, that again, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Well, which ones? Mark may have in mind specific references like maybe Isaiah 53 or Zechariah 13.7, which Jesus himself will reference later. But the point is really not the specific references per se, but that what is happening to Jesus is not simply this horrible tragedy that nobody saw coming, and if they would have known, they could have prevented. It is the outworking of God's own purpose and plan. I don't know. We, I, I, think, I imagine most, if not everybody in this room, knows that, believes that, but just focus on that for a little bit. That it was His design for the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. In verse 21. The Bible is God's book. He wrote about Jesus through the hands of men. That's what Scripture is. God ordained these events. He prophesied these events. Referencing Psalm 2, Later in Acts 4.26 and following, the believers there, the church in Jerusalem, prayed this. 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's heavy scripture, beloved. That is foreordained evil. And God does not do evil. So how do we reconcile this in our minds? I don't know that we can, but the scripture says what it means. God planned and predestined these events to take place. And beloved, it would still be unspeakably gracious and loving and merciful if a man named Jesus would have decided to try and offer his life for the salvation of others. Absolutely. But the murder of Jesus and all the different pieces of the story that bring it about was God's preordained design to save sinners. It didn't just happen as a result of him coming. It, he came, he was sent so that it would happen. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation for us. Here, here he is. God put Jesus to grief. God bruised his own son for us. Talk about unfair, right? We're, we're very quick to talk about how if, if God is good, if God is righteous, if God is just, how can all this happen? How can there be all this evil? Why so much happens that's so unfair? Beloved, that argument, and it's a difficult one to work through, no question, but the whole unfair argument ends at the cross. God, if anybody can claim something is unfair, it's Jesus. God gave His Son deliberately to suffer and to do so as the innocent for the guilty. So we can't talk to God about anything being unfair. He offered up His own Son to die for people when His Son was not guilty and we were. All the horrendous suffering that Jesus is about to endure was predestined by God so that God would remain just while purchasing a people for himself that he would make and declare were his own dear and holy children without compromising his righteousness or his holiness or his justice for one second, since the means by which our ransom and justification would be paid would be the blood and the righteousness and the resurrection of his own son for sinners. The cross is not an event God used or capitalized on to purchase eternal salvation for his people. No, no, no. Every crack of the whip, every drop of spit, every blow of the hammer on the nails that pierced his hands and feet ultimately came from God himself in order to rescue you and I. Is that divine child abuse, as some call it today, if God was a tyrant? right? When does abuse happen? You lose your temper, you fly off the handle, you go crazy. God isn't going crazy here. God's not losing it. God's not flying off the handle. Beloved, this was in eternity past, this moment coming. It, it's one thing to know you might die if you go somewhere. It's a whole other thing to know that you're going for the purpose of dying. And you don't deserve to die. Nobody can say that but Jesus if we want to get technical. He isn't bruising his son in anger because he did something. He's bruising his son in holy wrath because we did something. We ought not try to bite the hand that feeds us this morning, beloved. 
Our God is good and our God is just. And here's the thing. He was not forcing His Son against His will. This was the design. And if this doesn't happen, we are lost. That's what we ought to be worried about. If this doesn't happen, we're lost. Without God and without hope. Why don't we let the Creator decide what is just in the world He has made? He is God. God's sovereign hand at work here also doesn't excuse those who did it. That's not the way the Bible teaches us. God's sovereignty doesn't take away human responsibility. That's the thing we have to remember. Nobody here is being coerced against his or her own will to murder Jesus. That's not the way this went down. God simply let them do to his son what they already wanted to do. And neither was Jesus coerced by his father to lay down his life. He told us in Psalm 40 verse 8 that it was his delight to do the will of his father. We not only need Jesus bleeding and dying for our sin, yes... We need Him obeying throughout His life for our lack of obedience, which is also sin. Not just the things we do, beloved, but all the things God demands that we don't do. We need Jesus for both. So that our salvation is both the gift of forgiveness and the gift of righteousness. We need both. The Son of Man is not only able, but willing to go as it is written of Him. That's what he's going to do. But the one who also chose to betray him in God's design should have never come out of the womb, Jesus says. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Why? Why? Because what was written of him that he also decided to do to make some money was the cruelest, the worst betrayal, the most unjustified betrayal in the history of humankind. Period. This is our Savior. We need Him. Not only has He done nothing to deserve betrayal, but literally everything to deserve the opposite from Judas, from all of us. And we're all Judas. See, how so? Because we're all willing to give up Jesus to get what we want in a heartbeat. That's what sin is. Right? That's what sin is, beloved. It's idolatry. All of it. I'd rather have this than you. I'd rather give in to this desire than have you. We betray Him all the time, and we usually do it with a kiss on the cheek. I love you still. I, I love you, but I want this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to say this. I'm going to go here. I'm going to... Right? I mean, it's... it's and, and listen, remember, the goal in that is not... Become a sheriff in your life and monitor every little step you make so that you never slip up. It's, it's the acknowledgement that you're going to sin, that you'll need Jesus, not just at the beginning, but at the end. We never as Christians will reach a point where His blood and His righteousness are no longer necessary. So like, we've gotten as much forgiveness as we need because we don't sin anymore, or we're doing so much righteousness we don't lack it anymore. Beloved, we need the righteousness of Jesus to be saved. Not our obedience. God doesn't look on that as righteousness. He looks on faith as righteousness. Faith says, I need you. I need your son's blood. I need your son's righteousness. Or beloved, there is not salvation. Right? God didn't send Jesus to make people moral. God sent Jesus to save people from death and damnation. That's two very different things. 
Morality doesn't save. The gospel is the smite on morality. The quest isn't to be immoral. The quest is to rest in Christ and let the Spirit make us who we ought to be. This is what humanity did with its Savior. So we're in no position to tell God what He can and cannot do. So let us put our hands over our mouths now and watch God's design, what God wrote, unfold for us. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus institutes a new Passover. I think that's widely accepted, regardless of our understandings of the technicalities here. But not because he simply wanted to set up a new ritual, right? The, 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 the followers of Jesus, the church, Christians in the world, we don't celebrate Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. I think Jesus is instituting something new here. But again, not a ritual per se. But because all that the Passover pointed to was fulfilled and ended in his person and by his living and dying work. He is the Passover lamb. Every lamb that was sacrificed, every single one, was proclaiming the need for a lamb that would only need to be sacrificed once because its sacrifice was fully sufficient. Jesus is that lamb, spotless and slain, so that His blood would mark the door of every sinful heart that takes refuge in Him. That's what the Passover was pointing to, and what it was pointing to has come. Lambs will never be required again. To proclaim the forgiving work of God. The memorial is now in the bread and in the cup. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul literally calls him Christ, our Passover lamb. The Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted here, beloved, is the single greatest act of worship in which we redeemed sinners could ever participate. I wish we as Baptists would soften up a little bit and find more meaning and importance in the Lord's Supper. And I'm not talking about anything mystical. Listen, I don't think we have it enough. And that's on me. All right, I, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not blaming the church. I'm not blaming tradition. I'm not blaming the deacons. They've even talked with me about it before because they've heard me mention these things before. And so this is all on me. I'm, I'm just hesitant so much to always move. And But I, I, I think we need to have it more often. I think it would make a ton of sense to have it more often. We always think that if we have it too much, it'll lose its significance, right? Maybe that's because of how we view it, right? If all it is, if all it is, is simply a memorial, then yeah, having that all the time would be weird, right? Memorial Day, for example, has its significance because once a year, we ought to take a moment and thank God for those that have laid down their lives so that we can be free, right? So if you did that every day, which would be a good idea, right? Never a time to be unthankful for that. But this is not simply a memorial. And I'm, what Jesus did for us isn't something we're meant to remember every once in a while. And, and he, he, he gives it, when he says remember, he doesn't mean remember 
sometimes. Right? Don't forget about this. No, no, no. Remember it. That's two different commands. Don't forget and remember are two different commands. It's not another tradition in which we partake. We, we, we should have it more often, I believe, because of what Jesus tells us it is. And we should trust that we need that more than thinking, well, if we do that all the time, it'll get old, right? When we say that, I don't think we're thinking about how much we need the gospel and the fact that in the bread and the cup, the gospel is being proclaimed. Not because they're transformed in that moment into something else. It's bread and a cup, right? That I don't mean anything but that. I'm saying that these are the elements Jesus gave to remember Him. So there is a concrete way to make sure we remember who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and it's the Lord's Supper. And I'm telling you, I'm telling me, we need that more than once a month. right? I'd rather us agree with that before we change our tradition. What the gospel gives is proclaimed in the bread and in the cup. But, but we, maybe we don't yet fully realize what God intended for us or wanted us to have in it. No act of worship is greater than this. Maybe the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? The unleavened bread in the Jewish Passover, we learned, was a symbol for the body of Jesus. That's what it was for. And that's why it was unleavened, untainted by anything. To partake of the bread that represents His body is to realize again and again, not just His sacrifice for us, but His ongoing presence with us. I'm here. This is me, right? Jesus is here in the bread. No, no bone in His body would be broken, but all of Him would be given for us, the whole Jesus, the whole man, the whole self. When we take the bread, we embrace His offering to us. We lie down around the table, if you will, like they did. Sinners all... And eat with Him as He provides for us again and again and again in a feast that will never lack. The biggest trouble I ever got in in my first year as a pastor. And it's a miracle that only happened once. Okay? I was way too young. I've told you that before. We had our first Lord's Supper as the pastor of that church. With me being the pastor of that church. And I, I looked in the Bible and I thought, okay, it seems like Paul is saying there are people in the church that shouldn't be taking the supper. So I had everybody stand for it. And if you didn't want to take it, I said, you, you could be seated, right? Didn't think anything of it. That night, the former chairman of the deacons of that church comes to me in, in my office, this little sidebar off of the platform, and he was livid. Livid. He said, we do not stand when we take the Lord's Supper. It is received. We're not standing when we hear it because... That's how we memorialize it. And without even thinking, I said, do we lay down around tables? Do we have actual wine? Right? Do we have actual, like, what part of it are, are like, if you're going to say it's got to be exactly like that, then it, let it be exactly like that. Don't just pick one thing. But that didn't go well. <laughs> right? And I wasn't, I was not. His intentions were good. I was young. And not nice at all. The thing is, if again, if, if all if all it was 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 if all it was was a memorial meal, then yes, it would be weird to do it all the time. But it's so much more than that. It's it's the proclamation of the gospel. We, we when we take it, what does Paul say? You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. In taking it, 
You understand that text in 1 Corinthians 11. In taking it, we proclaim it. Why? Because what's in it is the body and blood of Jesus. The elements don't become that. We, We don't believe that. I don't believe that. That's not what I mean. Not at all. I don't mean the bread becomes the literal body of Jesus in the supper. It does not. It's bread, and we aren't cannibals, right? Jesus was bodily present with them when he said this, so not even the disciples would have been thinking he's handing us pieces of his body. They weren't chewing on him, right? Take this is my body. He says that, and he doesn't qualify it. He just says, this is my body, so it represents my body. That's what they thought. When Jesus said, I am the door... Nobody pictured him as a door walking around in Jerusalem, right? I mean, he said things like this all the time. So the point is not that the bread or cup become literally the body and blood of Jesus in our mouths. Absolutely not. We don't believe that. It's a horrible thing to think. But don't let us think that all we're doing when we do that is merely partaking of a symbol. I would say that contributes a lot more to it not being taken meaningfully than than having it more often would. Right? Without clarifying what he meant, Jesus said, holding the bread, this is my body. So we are meant to identify it with him when we eat in some way, right? We, we don't have to qualify it when we say that, when we quote Jesus, this is my body. I'm, I'm, we're quoting Jesus, right? We, he doesn't clarify it. We don't need to do that. It's like we're, we're so hesitant to just sometimes let a text stand and realize that maybe we're not able to grasp all of it, but we need to adhere to it, right? Don't, I, I just don't want us to miss what was given to us in the Lord's Supper. He is with us when we take it. Not because the bread is magic or the, or the cup is magic. No, no, no. This is what He said. He wants us to know every time you take that bread, I'm with you. I'm with you. This is my body. Right? It has meaning. The wine in the Jewish Passover, we learned, was a symbol for the blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many in verse 24. When he says many, by the way, Jesus is not trying to be exclusive. So it's not for all, it's for many. No, no, no. The, the, the point would be inclusive. One is dying for many, right? This phrase from Jesus recalls Exodus 24, 8. At the ratification of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, where it is said, Behold, the blood of the covenant coming from a lamb that the Lord has made with you. Just as the blood of a lamb sealed the Mosaic Covenant with Israel, so the blood of Jesus seals the new covenant, as Jesus says here, with his new people. This covenant will stand forever. It's eternal and everlasting because the one keeping it from the human side is Jesus, who will never break the covenant. To be saved is to be brought in to Jesus. That is why our salvation is eternal. It's because of where we are. We're in Christ. Because the blood keeping us in the covenant is not the blood we're constantly bringing through our obedience to anything, but that which Jesus brought once and for all through His perfect obedience for us. In verse 25, Jesus knows His death is near. He knows this will be the last time He'll commemorate the Passover with His disciples. Or at least this feast, that phrase, the fruit of the vine, that would have been the traditional Passover language for the Jewish prayer over the wine when they had it. And Passover, the drinking to which Jesus is referring, is in the great messianic banquet that was prophesied 
When God's great salvation of sinners is portrayed as this great feast at the end of time, Jesus doesn't mean he isn't ever going to eat or drink again at all until the consummation of the kingdom that is still yet to come, by the way. He'll eat with his disciples after his resurrection. He'll have breakfast with them. His point, as he explicitly says in Luke twenty-two sixteen, is that he will not celebrate this Passover again until all is fulfilled at the consummation of the kingdom at the end of all things. Not until everybody gets to the table, beloved. He won't do it again until everybody gets around the table. The shadow festival has passed away because the substance of it has come. Jesus. So now he waits to drink until his bride, the church from every nation, walks down the aisle and we go to that great eternal reception. But not without suffering first. Not without his blood and his death. This isn't just the story of a husband dying for his wife. This is the husband dying for an adulterous wife that he knew would never be perfectly faithful to him and would often wander. That's who we were when he died for us. Jesus doesn't love you based on who you will become. He loves you at your worst. Right? Again, Jesus didn't die for the cleaned up version of ourselves that we present to people. I mean, he did. But he's also dying for the us that nobody knows exists and that we hide very well. For those sins too, not just the respectable ones. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God deliberately chose to demonstrate his love in Romans 3.25. That is love. There's nothing else like it. You will never be loved like Jesus loves you. Nobody loves like he does. Nobody. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They all said the same. Jesus and the disciples head east out of Jerusalem to the western slopes of the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. And here, it's here that his literal physical suffering is going to begin this very night. The news that one of the twelve would betray him would have been hard enough to swallow as they're all traveling there, walking there, probably very quiet. But on the way from the upper room to the Mount of Olives, it gets even worse. Jesus informs them in verse 27 that they will all fall away. And that also is according to Scripture. Since the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. Zechariah 13.7, the text Jesus references here, that's a command from God in its original context. An imperative by God, strike the shepherd. It's a command. As a result of that blow... God's sheep will be scattered. God himself would be the one to strike his appointed leader and scatter his people in judgment for sin. God himself, again, 
It's all through the text is the ultimate agent of these events. All that is happening is by his will and his design. Given the many ways in which Zechariah 9 through 14 is alluded to throughout the gospel narratives of the Last Supper, we learn that Mark portrays Jesus' last night before his crucifixion, the time of end-time testing prophesied by Zechariah. The last days begin here with the death of Jesus. That's why they speak of these days, our days also, as the last days throughout the rest of the New Testament. But the suffering of the Son is not all that was written about Him. In verse 28, Jesus also assures them that along with scattering, there is a promise of reunion and restoration. God is going to raise Jesus from the dead. His suffering will end in victory. A crown will result from the cross. Resurrection is announced, is what Jesus is saying. He'll be waiting for them in Galilee, risen and alive, never to suffer again. But in the darkness of the garden and the looming threat of the betrayer, the disciples don't even, it seems, hear this. It doesn't even register. In fact, Peter can't stand it. So what does he do? In the face of something he can't control, in the face of the Savior he wants to be, for wants to have for himself, what does he do? He makes a promise. He makes a prediction. He prophesies. In verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. But they were all wrong. Do you know how long it took for Peter to do what he said he wasn't going to do? Just, just a couple hours. Just a couple hours. What we write is not guaranteed. What we promise is not certain. If salvation depends on the will or the effort or the promises of people, if the glorification of Jesus depends on whether or not I hold my commitments, if my salvation depends on that, it will never happen. Ever. We need Jesus. So again, if he gave us a supper as a means of remembering him, the more the better, beloved. I don't think Peter was lying. I, I don't believe, I don't think he thought he was lying. I think he meant it with every fiber of his being. I absolutely think that. I, he's willing in that moment to drink the cup. And maybe at this moment that's because he thinks drinking the cup means like, you know, fighting in a, in a war against the opponents of Jesus. And, and of course, we like that idea, right? Let us make you the king. Let us make sure people believe in you, right? Let us make sure that you're the king. But Peter was Peter. That is, he was human, just like us. Jesus calls us to come and die in order to live, not to come and conquer. That's not the call of Jesus. He conquered. We're in him. We wait for the consummation of that day. It really is the road to hell that's paved with good intentions. It really is. 
until we realize we are not up to the task and Jesus must save us, not assist us, we will remain lost, blind, enslaved, and dead in our sin. And Christians, you and I need to know this too. He's not our divine assistant. He is our divine Savior. Forgiving all my sin, performing all my righteousness, imputing that to my account, washing me clean, and the life I live by the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, not in myself. If good works come out of this broken vessel, they are the fruit of the Spirit in me, not the fruit of my commitment and effort. You and I can make promises and mean them. We can't keep them. The Son of Man goes as it was written of Him without missing anything. We need Him. We need Him. Jesus gives one more of His those truly statements to Peter in verse 30. You know, I, I, even if they all fall away, I won't deny, I, I'll die for you. No, no, you won't. All right. I think it's John's version of it. I love it. You'll forsake me, but when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. That is one of the most beautiful sentences in all of Scripture. Yeah, I'll, I'll take you back. Just, I'll take you back. You'll come back. The shepherd knows his sheep. You'll come back. And when you do, your brothers are going to need you. He's so merciful to us. Peter, you're not going to deny me just one time, man. You're going to do it three times before the sun rises, Peter. So Peter does what we do when we're told of our weakness and our insufficiency. He gets more emphatic about his promise, his commitment. Since we're learning the man trusts in his own will and his own ability and his own strength more than he trusts and believes the word of Jesus. And that is the thing that will be his downfall. Do you know what you do when you make a promise and Jesus says, I don't need that? You say, okay. Right? You don't say, no, 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 you don't know me, man. You don't know me. Then they all said the same. Peter's the name we, I mean, they all did it. I mean, they, they, Peter had the decency, I think it was Peter to, I mean, he tried, he took a knife and cut some poor guy's ear off. But I mean, they all ran away. Jesus told them what would happen. And they told him he was wrong. Jesus was right earlier. Those who claim to be the first will end up being last. They'll end up falling worse than the others. They are going to need his substitutionary suffering as much as everyone else needs it. So, the Son of Man will go as it is written of him. He will do the Father's will and it will be his delight even in the suffering and in the difficulty. So, what do we see here? What does God reveal to us in the Gospel of Mark? The failure and unfaithfulness of the disciples. This section is sandwiched in between the knowledge that Judas will betray, one of the twelve, and then Jesus' prediction that Peter will deny, and then they'll all forsake him and flee. In the middle of this is the faithfulness of Jesus, who will not be turned from doing the will of the Father. And what was written of him to complete the task as Messiah. The sovereignty of God and the sinfulness of people required the sending of God's only begotten Son, the only one who could accomplish his saving purpose, 
to become the sacrifice for our sin. Beloved, that's what it's going to take for you and me to be saved. That's the death and the life that cover everyone that is saved. So do we understand what that means? It doesn't matter quantitatively how sinful you are. We all need all of His blood and all of His righteousness. Do we understand that, right? All of it. So certainly I'm not so bad that that if I'm going to be saved it requires this. Yes, beloved. This, this, again, we, we judge levels of sin differently than God does. And so you think if I don't do these things, I'm not as bad. Jesus isn't dying like that. He's, he's, he's covering our sinfulness as much as our sin. He's covering the why, not just the what. Our salvation will take the sovereignty of God that ordains and controls all heaven and earth in order to be accomplished. In other words, the promise God made way back in the garden when we fell, that a seed of a woman would rise up to crush Satan's head, reconciling us to God and undoing the curse, that promise was made and it was going to be kept because God Himself, which He knew when He said it, was going to send the one who would keep it. Jesus was the plan all along. He would not only come from a woman, condescend from eternity in heaven to be conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit Himself so that He would not be tainted by the fall that all of us are tainted by. The result of God's design is the cross of Jesus Christ by which God God's purpose for creation will be accomplished. The glorifying of God for His grace being poured out upon vessels of mercy from among the rebels that turned on Him. And here, we are seeing what would happen if this story was in our hands and not His. We'd lose it in a few hours. No matter how good our intentions were. Why would our salvation take this? Why would it take God doing it Himself? Beloved, look. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Be honest. None of us needs a preacher to tell us that we're lost. We all know it. There are probably two kinds of people in here, if you really boil it down, probably. Those who look in the mirror and honestly think they can do it. And if Jesus has anything to do with it, it's as an assistant or a teacher or a good example, listen, then this isn't for you. Right? That's what you're saying. This is foolishness to you. There are professing Christians for whom the cross is foolishness. That's not... He doesn't do it all. He forgives me of my sin, but living a righteous life, that's up to me. Hey, good luck with that. That's all I have to offer you. The righteousness that God requires, that's what we're talking about here. It's perfection. It's not effort. I, I, I hate that argument. Well, I know he says be perfect, and I'm not perfect, but I'm trying really hard. Then you're going to be damned. The standard is not effort. The standard is perfection. So even as I strive for holiness and strive for good works, if for one second my mind is thinking I'm not His unless I do these things, I am lost. Why do we think we can perform the righteousness God requires? Why do we think this? Well, I have the Holy Spirit now. Then stop sinning. Stop. Well, I mean, I can't stop. Then be quiet. You need Jesus. 
I mean, just what are we doing? Then there are those who, they look in the mirror and they think there is no way this is for me. There's no way. Listen, both of you must come to Jesus. Both of you. Because both of you must repent. Both of you are denying the necessity of the cross. And thus shaming the cross as much as Judas and the disciples did. One side, the confident side, that I believe in myself side says, thanks but no thanks to the cross, or at least I can do it myself. They say that to Jesus. The other says, I wish you were that good, but you don't know me. Both responses to Jesus are sinful. Both deny the power and sufficiency of his work. Right? Both. It's, it's, you're in the same boat. Do we know why God not only had to write this story, but then enter the book and become the central character to accomplish it? Because left to ourselves, we will either deny him in confidence or deny him in self self-loathing. We need a substitute. And beloved, Jesus is that substitute. Period. We don't only need a substitute to bear God's wrath on our behalf, and we do. We need a substitute to perform our righteousness on our behalf. Because we aren't going to live up to it after He saves us, and He still requires perfection. The Lord our God does not change. Where do we think that perfection is going to come from? Do we really think we're going to arrive? Do we really think it comes from our commitments, our promises, our wills, as well-meaning as they may be? Beloved, look at the text. That's why it's there. You could have been right with Him in person for three and a half years. When the pressure's on, you're bailing. I'm bailing. We always think, well, if He was right here, it'd be so much easier. Apparently not. Apparently you can look right in His face, kiss His cheek, and betray Him. Apparently you can make promises to him after all that he's done for you and break them in a few hours at the first sign of opposition. Peter couldn't even wait until it got really bad. One of the three that he did was like a little girl. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We all must. You must believe he's sufficient, that what was written of him is true, that he lived and died and rose again to be believed upon as the only source and hope of salvation. This morning... He will take you. It is written. He will take you. And finally, let me say this. If you want written words that have meaning for you, listen to these. It is finished. Jesus has done it. Come to Him. Would you stand, please? 